Well, hello everybody and welcome back to another edition of GU Cast. It's Christmas week here in Melbourne. The sun is shining and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, uh, Dr. Renu Epen, urologist here at Peter Mac. Hello, Renu. Hello, Declan. It's a Christmas like no other Christmas. Yep, it's three days to Christmas <laughs> and we'll never forget Christmas 2020, I don't think, uh, but yeah. it is summer. It is summer. So we have lined up um, a series of summer-themed podcasts, isn't that right? That's right. This is our first of uh, three podcasts, our Prospect Summer Series on prostate cancer. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's been a busy year in prostate cancer, so we've a little bit to look back on over these three specials, and we've got plenty of stuff to look forward to as well. Um, But to explain what the Prospect uh, Summer Series is all about, we're joined by, uh, again, uh, once again, by our colleague, uh, Associate Professor Arun Azad, medical oncologist here at Peter Mac. Uh, and among the many hats that Arun wears is he's chair of the uh, steering committee that uh, runs the Prospect Educational Initiative uh, here in Australia. Arun, welcome back to GUcast. Thanks, um, Declan and Renu. Uh, Merry Christmas. It's uh, yeah. exciting. It's summer in summer in the Southern Hemisphere. Just to just to because uh, we have listeners all over the you have listeners all over the globe. So <laughs> in fact, the vast majority of our listeners are in the Northern Hemisphere. That's correct. Uh, so, uh, I think sixty eight percent are in the Northern Hemisphere. But we thought we'd bring a bit of summer into their miserable COVID ridden <laughs> uh, Northern Hemisphere winter by having this themed uh, prospect summer series. Um, so yes, as I mentioned, you're chair of the Prospect uh, Independent Steering Committee. So can you just remind us a bit uh, what Prospect is all about? It's been running for a few years now. Yeah, Prospect's been running, it's an educational initiative that's been running for eight years, um, supported by a uh, grant from Janssen, uh, but with an independent steering committee for the last um, three or four years it's been run, it's been led by um, Philip Prenti, um, our colleague from Eastern Health uh, at Box Hill here in Melbourne. Um, and and essentially, it's a it's a it's a involves um, um, uh, it's an independent steering committee that that uh, runs educational um, program once a year. Although this year has been different, obviously we've had a series of uh, of uh, virtual um, uh, activities with two webinars uh, involving Simon Chowdhury and Carmel Pizarro, and obviously now this summer series. Hopefully next year we'll return to face to face a face to face program. But if you look at the guests that. that um, have come out, come yeah. to Australia for the prospect um, in educational programs. It's really the luminaries of, of, of prostate cancer. So it's really been a very successful uh, initiative, and uh, I'm very, you know, pleased to be taking over as the chair of the steering committee from uh, uh, going forward, and uh, have big shoes to fill, um, uh, filling in for Phil, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, no, it has been great, and and it's been characterised in the old days, of course, by having a good physical meeting, multidisciplinary, focusing on prostate cancer, and we've got the list in front of us of the people who've been out here uh, at the prospect meeting since 2013. Uh, that first meeting, Steve Friedland, uh, Chuck Ryan, uh, then uh, Gert Attard, Chris Evans, Brian Davis, uh, Nick James, Tobias Marer, Misha Beltran, Chris Sweeney, Evan Yu, Alicia Morgans, um, uh, Misha again, and Marcus Grafen last year. That was a cracking meeting. And then Simon and Carmel virtually this year. So it's, it's, gonna, it's continuing at the moment over this, um, uh, over this Australian summer with this podcast, which I think is a nice way of continuing the ethos of Prospect, um, bringing hot topics on prostate cancer, um, supported by uh, Janssen Oncology, who uh, uh, underwrite the, the running costs of these educational initiatives and an independent steering committee led by yourself. So thank you very much for helping us put together these uh, three podcasts. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Continuing the objective of education. Exactly. <laughs> no, and I think just before we go, and I think one of the real strengths is the multidisciplinary nature of the meeting and the topics that have been presented in the past. And uh, you can see that from the guests who've come out. We've got a broad range of people who've come out. So, Like I you think, said, um, the real luminaries yeah, yeah, of prostate some, cancer. Some fantastic, uh, fantastic people involved for Look sure. Look forward to the day we can be in a room. 
all together again. And it's, yeah. it's very interesting, of course, if you go back to uh, seven or eight years, uh, you know, the, the questions have changed a lot, the research interests have changed. But I remember very well uh, back in 2014 when Gert Attard and Chris Evans were down here. PSMA Pet was already uh, here, of course, and it was already big waves. We knew this was a big thing coming. So that is what we're focusing, one of the main topics we're focusing on in this first uh, uh, of our uh, three-part GU Cast Prospect Summer Series. Um, and what we wanted to particularly focus on is the impact of uh, PSMA Pet CT in in the M0 CRPC space. So that's the the other big thing we want to talk about today is the M0 CRPC space. So um, let's spend a few minutes talking about that run before we um, welcome our international guest um, and another one of our local guests to talk about PSMA Pet CT. So this M0 CRPC thing, I've got a few bugbears about this. (laughs) I have to remind ourselves about And one of them, one of which is uh, this now gets called Mm non-metastatic CRPC. In these big, flashy uh, New England Journal papers that come out, I, I see that these trials that started out as M0 CRPC have been rebadged as non-metastatic CRPC. But we, we'll get to that in the second half of the program, I suppose. Um, but it, it is a very interesting area, uh, M0 CRPC. I think it does still, it's a puzzling area, I find, in some ways, um, how we got to M0 CRPC in the first place. But maybe we'll start off a little by talking about about the this population of M0 CRPC around. Can you tell us a little bit about them, and then we'll talk a little about the three pivotal trials that um, read out in the past year or two that gave us an understanding of the impact of novel AR pathway inhibitors uh, in this space. Yeah, Declan, I think that's puzzling is the right word uh, in some respects because these patients, I think, get managed for a start, get managed by a combination of urologists, radiation oncologists and medical oncologists. And, and until these, you know, the pivotal trials read out, we really had no standard of care in them. So there was really a whole range of different therapeutic options were being taken ranging from just observing them on ADT alone, adding in you know old anti-androgens like bicalutamide or uh, nilutamide, etc., um, or even sometimes using dexamethasone, something like that, low-dose dexamethasone. So we really there's a very disparate group of patients who often can be watched for a long time um, and were sort of managed by different specialists and, and a lot of heterogeneity, not just in their outcomes, but I think even in the management uh, and one of the things I think that's that the, the the three trials have really reinforced is that there's there's really two sort of groups of patients. There are ones who've got clearly got rapidly progressive disease, and that's PSA doubling time is the key point there. And in the trials, all of the trials recruited men who had a PSA doubling time of ten months or less. But in actual fact, when you look at the studies, um, the, the the median PSA doubling time was around three to four months in in, in those in those studies. So. Um, that's one that's one aspect to consider because there are also men and we've got these guys in the clinic who've got PSA doubling times of closer to two years, 18 months and you can just watch those guys and in many cases they almost never progress before something else, another health issue comes up that maybe you know um, shortens their lifespan or causes them other problems. Um, so I think that's the key sort of message out of the studies is that it's not, you know, is that this, is, this uh, M0 CRPC is a diverse group of patients but the PSA doubling time does find those ones who are at risk of developing metastases and in the trials you know the median time to development of metastases by conventional imaging was around 12 to 15 months so and of course when that happens it's associated with symptoms in some cases or, or more rapid you know d- d- disease progression that can then cause problems so there are groups of patients here there is a group of patients in here that we do need to treat but there are ones that we don't need to treat and the PSA double time is a nice simple way of being able to stratify that I think. Okay so l- let's go back a little bit so Renu we, there are lots of these patients in urology and radiation oncology waiting rooms all around the world these are patients who usually have had primary treatment so in, in these trials of M0 CRPC about three quarters of the patients had had 
definitive treatment earlier. They'd had surgery or radiotherapy or a bit of both, but the PSA is rising and then somebody starts them on ADT. Or the other population that make up this uh, this M0CRPC are patients who never had primary treatment, but for whatever reason they had localised disease and they were started on ADT. And of course, as we know, uh, once you write that script uh, for ADT or do an orchidectomy, you have started the clock ticking on CRPC, haven't you? And we Absolutely. Have, and so some of these older guys who might have had some radiotherapy, the PSA is rising up a bit, they're getting a bit anxious, uh, and we make a decision to write a script for you know, ADT, and that's good news comes early, doesn't it? The PSA is no longer going up, it's going down, and people are happy for a while, they might have some symptoms, but anyway, they're happy. But yeah. guess what? If you watch these men long enough, it's inevitable that they're going to get CRPC, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, like like you said, Aaron, it's a it's a very heterogeneous group, um, and they're not only is their is their current progress very different, but also like you said, their background. You know what kind of treatment they've had in the past. But you're right. As soon as we write the script for ADT, then the the PSA then becomes a a, a kind of a, a something that you watch so carefully. And, of course, so it's basically an iatrogenic condition. M0CRPC only happens because we start ADT in the first place. So I think that's one of the important lessons out there that when we speak about this disease area is we say to people, you know, think very carefully about does your patient need to have ADT? And, you know, EAU guidelines have come out particularly strong in this area in the past two or three years to say do not start ADT in the non-metastatic setting unless, and there are a couple of caveats. But I think that... That it has influenced practice. So there are not as many of these patients around as people might think. And we found that when we were recruiting for these trials, that was one of the reasons we said, well, you know, we actually don't start the ADT until they become metastatic in the first place. Uh, and the second issue we had in the past five years was PET imaging, which we will come to uh, shortly. Um, but I, I do like your summary that there is, a, when we look at these patients, and they're in all our waiting rooms, especially the, the, the radiation oncologists and the urologists are run before they go to you. Uh, and lots of these people, we just watch them for years and years. But that 10-month that doubling time figure didn't come out of nowhere, did it? it? It was this Matt Smith paper back in 2013. I remember this randomized trial of denosumab or whatever That's that right. showed that you know there's a big difference. Once If the PSA is trundling along uh, for you know doubling time is more than a year um that you can really watch them for years many of them come to no harm but those ones there's a big tipping point once the psa doubling time gets shorter than 10 months um and if you just watch those men in the control arms they tend to get metastases they go from m1 m0 to m1 in what about 18 or 24 months yeah or even less probably yeah it's sort of 13 14 month mark yeah, typically so yeah the, the, it was a it was a postdoc analysis of matt smith's um denosumab paper and there's a famous sort of graphic where there's clearly a the, the curve mm. for yeah the, the curve for development of metastases clearly um, there's a sharp inflection point around the sort of nine ten month mark which is where the study design which is how the studies that were subsequently done were were designed on that. So here we then have an unmet need population. There's no therapy in this area, but we have identified that these men on ADT, for whatever reason, they were M0. Once their doubling time picks up a bit, they are at risk of getting metastases within a year and a half or two years. So then, of course, what happened was the, the drugs that became very standard of care in MCRPC, in these patients who had metastases in CRPC, uh, particularly these AR pathway inhibitors, suddenly became the obvious place to look to. They were effective in the post-docetaxel population. They were effective in the pre-docetaxel population, OS benefit. So what about if you bring them very far forward? And we've got these three trials. We don't want to go into them in, in massive detail, but basically, in summary, um, three trials, uh, three AR pathway inhibitors, enzalutamide, apalutamide, daralutamide, all these superamides, uh, and what happened? Uh, yeah, so we had the three trials, um, um, Spartan, which was with apalutamide, Prosper with enzalutamide, and then uh, Aramis with darolutamide. So actually the three studies were 
almost identical in terms of their design, the patient population. There were some very subtle differences in their inclusion exclusion criteria, but very similar studies. Um, and they all had the primary endpoint being metastasis-free survival with overall survival being a secondary endpoint. And they all randomised men, obviously continue ADT and then to either have the AR pathway inhibitor or placebo. And the results were actually strikingly similar for all of them. The, the control arm in all the studies um, between 12 to 16 months had developed metastases in the experimental arm, it was around three, 36 to 40 months. It was sort of just over that three-year mark. And that translated... Um, and so the studies were all positive in the primary endpoint. Um, for metastasis-free survival. For metastasis-free survival. Yep. And then in the subsequent um, longer-term follow-up for OS, there's actually an OS benefit as well. Um, uh, as well. So the three agents, I think the message out of those three studies, and people pick them apart and try and work out one is better than another they're actually the results are strikingly similar which is actually good because they're very similar drugs as we know um and so there clearly there's activity of these of these of these drugs and there's not just in terms of delaying metastases which is an important endpoint but actually also in terms of extending survival and that's actually yeah. been one of the big stories of 2020 is that the OS has now read out on these three trials. And guess what? OS. So OS is like the holy grail in oncology, isn't it? I'm thinking, you know, in some ways it's funny. It hasn't made more waves, actually. Yeah. I know they're all New England Journal papers, but uh, but there is an OS benefit. So suddenly that patient population, these um, M0CRPCs with fast doubling time, this is now a, a standard of care we should be considering for these patients in, in when it's appropriate for them to have it and when we can afford it, of course, because that's the other yeah. big issue. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, and we'll talk about this in the, in, the, in the second half of today's podcast, but I mean, these men are either already have metastatic disease, if just you can't see it on CT and bone scan, or they're on the way to developing it. And and so it's really just like bringing Abby, Enza, darolutamide earlier in the mcrpc spectrum but it's just when they've got very low volume disease we know they work in m1 crpc before chemo after chemo so it doesn't it's not a surprise that it was it was also beneficial in in the m0 crpc setting um but you're right it is a big deal i think maybe because these patients are not you know we've you know if you look at the figures globally they're probably somewhere around three to seven percent of prostate cancer patients you know in this sort of m0 crpc space depending on where you're you know where you're um, practicing um, but three to seven percent of prostate cancer patients is still a reasonable number. Like in terms of absolute numbers, that's still a reasonable number. So, yeah, perhaps a little surprising um, that there wasn't more waves. But the three studies were clearly positive and and remarkably similar results when you look at the when you break down the um, the actual statistics. And therefore, in guidelines. But Renu, so this these trials were based on conventional imaging. So I remember yeah. very well. So we were blinded to PSA results once the patients went in. You didn't know what the PSA was, but it was going up quickly. Yeah. Uh, your patient went into the study that's doubling every three or four months, actually. That's what it ended up being. And then you're blinded, and they're randomized to placebo or these AR paths. And then they got CT and bone scan every three months going forward. And that's what triggered the events. Yeah. But during this period, as we've already hinted at, of course, everything changed, didn't it? Absolutely. You know, And, and you're right. I mean, uh, it, it matters what we call things. And this kind of traditional way of saying non-metastatic uh, disease is... It's not really valid anymore in the days of PSMA PET because all that means is that you've got M0 disease that you can't find on conventional imaging. Um, but yes, in the last few weeks, we're still reeling from the from the news uh, from the US that the FDA is, FDA is now approved PSMA PET um, specifically at UCLA and UCSF. And we've got our, our nuclear medicine gurus here joining us to talk about this. Uh, there's been a lot of excitement, especially on social media, but also a lot of confusion. So uh, we're really happy to welcome back uh, Professor Michael Hoffman, uh, our, uh, our local GUcast uh, favourite, <laughs> um, dialing in from his home studio, which looks like the beach, uh, doesn't it, Declan? Yeah, Michael's on Zoom. Hello, Michael. <laughs> 
Hello, Declan Renu and the room. Pleased to be with you. Hi, Michael. Great. And our international guest, Renu. Absolutely. So we're very, uh, we're very pleased to uh, welcome Dr. Jeremy Kelly, who's a professor of nuclear medicine at UCLA and very instrumental uh, in, the, in the FDA approval of PSMA PET, the news that we recently had. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, in LA, it is the winter, even though the winter is pretty uh, cool. It is not the summer like uh, I can see in your screens, guys. <laughs> wow. So tell us what's been what's been happening over the last few weeks in light of this news. I mean, it, it, it must be a bit of sensation there. Yes, there is a lot of um, excitement and noise, and, and clearly we are receiving uh, many many positive notifications it's coming from all over so i think it's it's nice to to have the opportunity to clarify a little bit um, long story short this is the end of a long journey of a long adventure mostly paperwork adventure the fda submission is just <laughs> a mountain of paperwork that you have to submit you get some feedback and you go one by line by line to the reviewers comments going from uh, the clinical side to each of the uh, chemistry details. Yeah. Um, maybe you have specific questions of uh, what it means and how it works, or. Yeah. I mean, it's the end of one adventure, but it feels like the start of another one. Yeah, um. and of course we had Tom Hope, uh, your your co collaborator from uh, uh, up the coast at UCSF, uh, speaking about it last week. And so, in summary, uh, FDA have now approved the use of uh, gallium PSMA in the primary staging setting for high risk disease and also in biochemical recurrence. Um, but as we went into in detail with uh, Michael Hoffman and um, Tom and Peter Carroll, Matt Cooperberg last week, it's it's limited to the two academic sites who made the application. So that's yourself and Tom Hope, of course. But nonetheless, I think as we heard on that podcast, it's very exciting because there's now a pathway forward for either other institutions to replicate your application and, and it would be that would kind of presumably automatically be approved if they just did what you guys did. Um, or indeed other agents that we know are coming, DCFPYL is coming. So in other words, I think the, the, the floodgates are opening now. They're certainly peaked open a bit for more widespread use of PSMA uh, in, in the US for the primary staging and for recurrent setting. Is that a, a reasonable summary, Jeremy? Is that what you're seeing? Because I noticed that there was a big piece in the New York Times at the weekend, and, and your name is listed there, and Tom Hope as well. And with that kind of mass media attention i think uh, you must be getting a lot of requests already uh, to do scans for people we do and so you have the patients directly uh, contacting us that's for sure please treat me with your scan or something like that <laughs> and it's even not clear if it's a scan or a treatment yeah. And, yeah. and you have also a lot of confusion about why is it approved only at ucla and ucsf so maybe I can resummarize it a little bit why it's like that yes. it is because in the FDA view, gallium-68 PSMA-11 is considered as a drug. And the manufacturing process, the basically the labeling of gallium-68 to the cold part PSMA-11, is considered the manufacturing process. And because of the short half-life of gallium-68, which is one hour, it has to be done on-site by either radiochemist or radiopharmacist. And so this can... the because the manufacturing process is done on-site, the approval is only done and only valid for the sites who are manufacturing it. It also means that if another site can provide, sorry for the, if another site can provide the proof to the FDA that they can manufacture it 
the same drug product exactly the same way that is in the UCLA and UCSF FDA, they will get the approval. It is called an ANDA, it means abbreviated NDA, and you just have to show to the FDA that you're doing the same manufacturing process with the same quality criteria and you get the same drug product. So uh, that's why it's only for UCLA or UCSF because of the this uh, labeling process, these sites are considering the manufacturing site. And this would be a big difference with the F18 compounds, the fluor 18 compounds. You know the way you can uh, do the fluor 18 production with the cyclotron, the half-life is longer, you have two, three hours in front of you. So you can basically do almost unlimited production, wide-scale capacity of production, and do uh, uh, done on a central basis, and then you can do remote delivery to remote sites. So there, the manufacturing um, site will be the, the kind of the cyclotron, the factory, whatever, but it will be a, a big factory with very wide-scale production uh, capability, and this will really lead to a very wide-scale usage and availability of uh, PSMA PET. Yeah. So this will come, I think, later in 21 with DCFPYL probably and maybe other players. Uh, but I think it's expected for them to... You had some press release, like they got the uh, priority review, Progenix, now Lentils, the one who are uh, owning uh, DCFPYL. So it is, it is expected by the end of 2021, you will have other players on the PSMA PET market, which is good for patients, good for doctors, much easier uh, to, to get and widely available. Fantastic. So, yeah, it clearly is, isn't it? Yeah. You've, you've, you've prized open the door and the pathways are there, so it's happening. And, you know, as we spoke about last week, Renu, we're excited about this because it means that, uh, I mean, we've been doing this for years and years, yeah. but having the US having access to it means they'll be able to build it into trials and we'll get a lot more data and, and that's really the big opportunity, as well as, of course, patients benefiting from what we, we have shown as a superior scan. So, Michael, um, uh, before we go on and talk about this M0C or PC space that I know yourself and Jeremy have a great interest in and we want to talk about one of your big papers in particular, um, a- any comments on, on what Jeremy said there were a couple of weeks on from i think we did our podcast on the day of the fda approval right. actually didn't we yeah, yeah but there's I been a couple we of weeks to digest it yeah look it's obviously big news uh i think uh fda registration sends a signal around the world that this is a new compound it enables it to be put into international guidelines that are written in the u.s uh, otherwise you know many guidelines say if it's not fda approved do not include uh it is interesting to reflect on the different regulatory systems. You know, we did the pro-PSMA trial in Australia, started in 2016, running at 11 sites, uh, gallium PSMA production. Uh, You know, we didn't have to seek approval from the TGA, our FDA equivalent for an IND in order to conduct that that study. In Australia, we have a lodgement system where essentially our local uh, ethics committees uh, decide whether or not it's appropriate for a hospital to be able to produce this in their hospital radio pharmacy. So I have a preference for the Australian system. It's a bit more open and uh, it uh, it does rely on the honesty of the hospitals and the clinicians, but it does allow more rapid access uh, to our patients. And these agents are all very, very safe. We should keep in mind that the FDA, their purpose is to balance the risk and balances. And I suspect probably millions of doses of gallium PSMA have been given around the world to date. And there hasn't been a single adverse effect 
to my knowledge. So this is a really safe agent. Uh, so I'm hopeful that the FDA will, you know, speed up approvals of pet radio pharmaceuticals, uh, perhaps find even more efficient ways. They're obviously making progress with an academic application that's been successful and that's fantastic, uh, but it really shouldn't take so many years uh, for these to reach the clinic and benefit our patients. It's a really exciting time, isn't it? Because um, like, like Michael said, um, not only is this the, the start of, of, of something, something big, but also you know, other radiopharmaceuticals will get approved in, in the future, um, incorporation into guidelines, and, and really the most important thing, does it change outcome? Now, we have, we have an opening to that because now we can incorporate PSMA PET into clinical trials and really kind of answer those big, difficult questions. Yep, get friendly with your nuke med physician. It's <laughs> our, it's one of our favorite mantras, Jeremy. We love promoting uh, GU Onc teams, get, embedding uh, their nuke med team with them. We all have great cross fertilization, I think, when we do that. So um, it's been second nature to us for so yeah, long. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, around this building, we're full of nuke med people. Yeah. <laughs> um, now back to the CRPC uh, a run. Um, so we started out this conversation talking about this group of men who are M zero, but they're on ADT for whatever reason. Uh, and now their PSA is rising, and it's rising quickly. Uh, and they're M0, these patients. And these three pivotal trials, that's thousands of patients. A, a multitude of New England Journal papers have reported at the scan findings at inclusion, and then as they go on placebo or they go on treatment. And we can see this big delta. If you treat early, you push way out the metastases, uh, the, the visible metastases on conventional imaging. But, of course, now PET imaging has come along. And I suppose we all presumed a bit about this you know as, as we were recruiting into these trials we presumed pet would change the landscape um and it has of course what well, your your thoughts on it before we go and ask jeremy to talk about this uh, paper yeah i mean i think that in the end yeah, it's difficult and and you know before i answer that i think the for me one of the biggest um steps forward with the FDA approval is that we can build PSMA PET now into hopefully into clinical trials like run by pharmaceutical companies and, and, and commercial sponsors so that we can eventually hopefully get to the point where we're no longer doing CT and bone scan. It's just the accepted imaging tool is, is PSMA PET. And, and that's important because we still, you know, and we see this all the time in Australia, we see patients coming into the clinic who've had PSMA PET for all sorts of, all different spectrums of, of prostate cancer and and but we're interpreting that in the context of clinical trial data that's been done with conventional imaging. And this is a perfect example. We've got M zero CRPC, which is just M zero because you've got poorly sensitive CT and bone scan. But we always suspected that there was additional disease. It's just a question of how much and and where it is exactly. Is it local? Is it regional? Is it is it extra pelvic? You know, distant metastases. And we always suspected that. But you know, I think that the 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 the, the paper and the, the, that we're going to talk about now really help to consolidate that in our in our own mind. So perhaps we can get um, Jeremy to speak, Jeremy and Michael to speak about that. Yeah, because the big first question was, all right, you've got your M0 CRPC patient, his PSA is rising every three or four months, his conventional imaging is negative, so he's eligible for all these trials. But Jeremy, uh, if you did a PET scan in these patients, what do you find? And yourself and Michael and uh, others have published a very nice paper in Clinical Cancer Research uh, last year that does help answer the question of what happens if you do a PET scan in these uh, high-risk CRPC patients. Yes. Um, in fact, you know, PSMA PET now is the basically the most sensitive uh, imaging tool that we have. It's more sensitive than conventional imaging, choline PET, or even fluciclovine PET. And with a more sensitive imaging tool, we need to basically redefine each disease stage. And for example, if you look at the non-metastatic, cancer-resistant prostate cancer patients, 
uh, NM or M0 uh, CRPC, the population that was used for uh, the registra registration trials of fenzalutamide, apalutamide, or darolutamide. So a pretty big deal, even even though you said just it was like less than 10% of the of the patient, I think it's still a big deal. And yeah, they were all defined as non-metastatic by conventional imaging, meaning CT and bone scan. And in a study that was, uh, as you mentioned, published in uh, clinical uh, cancer research, that was an international retrospective study. We pooled PSMA pets on, uh, of coming from multiple sites. And we look at 200 patients with the same characteristics than the population of the Spartan trial, meaning PSA above toe, high risk for M1 disease, PSA doubling time less than 10 months, or glycine score above eight. And PSMA pet detected in that cohort, metastatic M1 disease outside of the pelvis uh, in about 55% of the study population. So in more than half, they are not NM or M0, they are M1, they are MCRPC. And, but these patients are still the ones who benefited from apalutamide in a trial, for example, in the Spartan trial. So I think we should still give them the drug, especially now that uh, first-line treatment strategy for M0 and MRCRPC are kind of a little bit comparable. It's just that the definition of metastatic versus non-metastatic disease needs to include maybe now with which imaging modality it was done, and maybe we should say in, a, in the label of a drug, non-metastatic by conventional imaging or metastatic by PSMEPET. We just have to redefine the disease. It's the same patients, it's just that we have to yeah, change the definition of what is metastatic uh, or non-metastatic. Well, I think this is interesting because between Australia and the US, there's a flip-flop in availability. So we have PSMA PET really widely available in Australia. I think it's fair to say across Australia, all these men are already getting PSMA PET scans. Neither urologists or medical oncologists or radiation oncologists are really doing conventional imaging anymore in these patients. But what we don't have available in Australia, which is available in the US, is these drugs. You know, none of these drugs are actually funded for the M0 CRPC setting, despite the evidence base, which is now definitive with overall survival. These drugs are not funded in Australia, uh, so they're not accessible. And so we have a little bit of a flip-flop, uh, which is interesting. Obviously, all these trials were conducted before PSMA PET. You know, I'm of the belief that PSMA PET will better characterise this population. And, uh, you know, it, these, are, these were large trials of many hundreds of patients to show that these drugs were effective but we're well aware that not everyone in the trial benefited from therapy and uh, these novel anti-androgen therapies also have, you know, can have severe side effects like uh, fatigue or even seizures with enzalutamide. We can go through the list. Uh, so you can end up worse off. So it is an onus on us to better select patients. Now it's difficult to do that at the moment because the evidence base is clearly based on conventional imaging. Uh, but I think we can make some hypotheses and particularly perhaps in Australian market or other markets where these drugs are not available, you will want to select your patients a little bit more carefully, particularly if patients are paying out of pocket for these drugs. And you may use PSMA PET to just help you select a little bit more. Uh, but I also want to take a step backwards because we're always talking about PSMA PET being more sensitive, picking up more and more disease, but it also goes the other way. And we see this in our multidisciplinary team meetings the patient comes for a bone scan CT and the bone scan shows a 
unequivocal metastasis, but the PSMA PET shows that it's in fact a bony island. And the same goes for CT with borderline enlarged lymph nodes. So we can convert M1 conventional patients to M0 patients with PSMA PET CT. And that actually then makes these patients potentially suitable for these therapies as per the sort of study criteria. Uh, so we need to be mindful of that as well. We're not just talking about increased sensitivity, but we're also talking about increased uh, specificity. And not only that, but decreased number of equivocal studies and greater reporter agreement. Actually embedded in this trial published in clinical cancer research uh, was inter-observer agreement because several readers uh, read these studies and the kappa scores were very high between 0.81 and 0.91. And, and we know that that's not the, actually the case for CT bone scan. So you show the same CT and bone scan pair to 10 radiologists, you are going to get some different answers in this space. Uh, and you can presume that PSMA PET CT is more reproducible. Another benefit of this new technology. That's a good point, isn't it? It's not just the sensitivity, it's the accuracy of PSMA PET scan that makes it so much more superior. Yeah, and which is why, um, as Tom Hope said last week, pro-PSMA complements uh, the mm. UCSF, UCLA studies very nicely because it was a randomised trial against conventional imaging, so they all add value into the same pot. But it's still a run creates a lot of conundrum because I think, as Michael pointed it's clearly more accurate and sensitivity is better. It's more accurate, but the treatment decisions we make are, are not based on novel imaging so there's no easy fix we've 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 known this for years and years but i i'm watching it on twitter the last couple of weeks jeremy um people already pushing out okay from the u.s this is um you know 53 year old guy uh, psa 23 m0 on conventional imaging he's got great group 5 prostate cancer about to have a prostatectomy but then he goes and has a pet scan probably at your place and he's got bone metastases you know and i can see people on twitter going oh we can't believe the new imaging he needs a biopsy you know <laughs> yeah we, hello you know we've beat we, we we stopped doing that five years ago but you can see that this is going to be quite disruptive this uh this scan as it emerges into practice, which is why, as, as we spoke about before, Arun, it's very important that we build these into trials going forward, and that's what the FDA approval will help reveal. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the reality, you know, Declan. I mean, you know, um, I, I sit there on on trial steering committees for some, you know, with with with, with big pharma pushing the pushing the barrow for you know building building you know new imaging, not just use CT bone scan, but always the comeback is, oh, it's not FDA approved, we can't do it because. That is ultimately when a drug company is running a trial, they want to get their drug, you know, FDA approved into the clinic. Um, and so that is a massive step, you know, to actually get FDA approval means that I think you'll overcome that, that sort of, that really, a, you know, a wall of resistance to incorporating, you know, the best imaging into trials. And, and eventually we'll get to the point where, as I said, I think we won't do CT and bone scan as part of trials. And so the question of applying trial data to the real world we won't have this disconnect between the imaging that will confuse or create well there'll be extra conundrums that will go over but the imaging won't be the conundrum anymore but um that's still some years away but it's a big deal it's a big deal fantastic someone tweeted yesterday more accurate staging with imaging does not equal simpler decision making simpler decisions in the clinic uh which maybe is true although i would argue that uh Equivocal studies from CT and bone scan creates a lot le- a lot more confusion than uh, perhaps definitive imaging findings from PSMA PET. Uh, but Tom Hope replied, uh, uh, "Simple decisions, simpler decisions does not equal better, better patient outcomes." Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. To yeah. bear that in mind, and uh, yeah. you know, we discuss these cases in our MDT, and I, I think we reach 
better decisions for our patients with more accurate imaging. It's somewhat delusional to think that with less accurate imaging, we can reach a better decision for the patient in front of us just by putting on our blindfolds and going, well, we don't know what the imaging findings are. Let's just follow this 1,000 patient clinical trial. I think clinical trials are really critical, but when you've got the patient in front of you, surely more accurate information about the distribution of disease is going to lead clinicians to make and patients to make better informed shared decisions. And I think that's what we hear from patients as well. They yeah. they want accurate information. And then even if we come back and say, oh, however, stampede and charted and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. I, I see the thing. Uh, I see that thing on the scan. I know it's right. Uh, I want you to take that into account as you help advise me. So that's what it is. It's not just in a clinical setting, but also in, in a clinical trial setting, having the most uh, the most accurate, the most information you could possibly have about a patient. less equivocal findings. Exactly. Yeah. It just helps with better patient selection for these you know, yeah, therapies um, can, that can be I think one of the myths is that PSMA PET is a biomarker, and it is, don't get me wrong, it's a biomarker, but an imaging test for staging or restaging, in part it's a biomarker, but in part it's actually more like a physical examination when you are just trying to ascertain what is the true state of the disease, yeah. where is it positioned, what's the extent of it, what's the volume of it, because that helps you guide clinical decisions. Some of that is not biomarker information. Uh, if you think the patient is M1 on conventional imaging because the sclerotic lesion that's actually a bone island is lighting up on the bone scan and that's misreported as a metastasis and you categorize that more accurately with a PSMA PET, that's, this is not biomarker information. This is just correct stage and everything that follows from correct stage helps you guide patient management. And if you get that wrong at time point zero, everything else that follows is illogical yeah very good but and in, in, in finishing on this m0c or pc you know we, we we sometimes get asked the question should this patient have a pet scan like the patient with the fast rising psa the one we've been speaking about a run um, but i think what the, what this paper uh, that jeremy and michael were involved with shows us is that if you've got a high risk m0c or pc and the psa is rising quickly you don't need to do a pet scan the psa has given you the answer because um you know 98 percent of these patients have disease outside the prostate and more than half of them distant metastases but the rest you know pelvic disease you can't see so the answer is already there uh, you don't actually need to do a pet scan but i agree with what michael says it does give you more information but if just it's don't call it non-metastatic just don't call it non-metastatic <laughs> so that's where we started out from please that's call right. this m0 because uh, we understand what that means by particular imaging but finally jeremy and uh, while we have you on the podcast the other big paper that you led last year that i really uh, enjoyed um was your lancet oncology paper the prospective trial where you compared psma ct PET-CT with um, flucyclovine uh, for a biochemical recurrence population. So this has been a hot topic only in the US, really. They've been using flucyclovine because it got um, this amino acid tracer because it got FDA approved for biochemical recurrence when nobody could access PSMA and people were, you know, to be honest, banging on about this thing that we thought looked a bit useless and we'd had experience of seeing patients coming with these scans, looked a bit useless. But you did a very nice prospective study head-to-head comparing PSMA-11 with flucyclovine uh, and in summary, you know, showed that PSMA-11 was superior. Is that the end of flucyclovine, Uh, especially now with your FDA approval? Is it going, going, gone? It had a brief moment in history, but it's, it's been dispatched to the history books. Uh, the volume of fusiclovine will decrease at some point, that's for sure, of fusiclovine scan. Uh, the end, so for now, uh, I have to repeat, like the approval is only for UCLA and UCSF, and because of the, the labeling process and the manufacturing capability, 
you can do maximum per site something like six to eight patients, no more. So you have in the whole US currently two sites that can offer maybe six or 12, 16 patients per day for the whole US on the West Coast. So <laughs> it will not replace Fusiclovin for now, just in terms of volume. Yeah. It will yeah. come when other sites will get their approvals, when you will have fewer 18 tracer getting approved with the same manufacturing capability that Fusiclovin uh, has now. Then I think Fusiclovin, yes, it will... Uh, will go down the numbers a lot and PSMA will slowly replace uh, little by little. The clinician will, will get used to it. It will be reimbursed at some point. For now, it's not the case, but I would expect that maybe in one year from now, a Medicare patient will get it for free the same way they get an axiomin for free now. And then you will get this success. So it will take some time, but I think it's on its way. That's true. Uh, Blue Earth Diagnostic, the, the company that owns uh, Flucyclovin, knows it well, and they have their PSMA compounds uh, in the pipe for years now. So they are seeking FDA approval. They, they will they will go for an NDA, I guess, uh, next year. So they know that, and they have already changed uh, player. I think in some cases, so in most of the case, what we observe is that the PSMA overexpression, that is the biological target of the of the, 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 the PSMA PET imaging technique is um, more, is like you have more PSMA over, overexpression than increased amino acid metabolism that is the biological target of the Fusiclovin or Axumin scan, which is increased in prostate cancer, but less increased than the PSMA overexpression. So you just have more probe, more tracer that goes in the prostate cancer lesion just by a more kind of a relevant biological target for imaging prostate cancer, which is the PSMA overexpression. And so in most of the case, it leads to a very uh, clear-cut head-to-head comparison where you have a faint borderline equivocal uptake on the axumin. You can call it positive if you are a very well-experienced reader. And on the PSMA PET scan, it's like black and white, easy to call, very reproducible, and you call it. So it's much easier to read, and, and you have it. But, Fantastic. Um, yeah. Fantastic, Jeremy. Well, thank you so much. And um, it's been great to have you on. We could talk like this for hours. We haven't even gone into our other favorite topics. Uh, but uh, uh, we know uh, we will have you back on the program to talk more about PSMA PET and about Theranostics, our other big favorite topic, Arun. Isn't that right? Yeah, there's still, uh, there's we, we could go on for our, for, forever, uh, Declan. Yeah. Uh, there's, we've got uh, Christmas shopping to do. We've got Christmas <laughs> shopping to do. Um, yeah, so with that, I think we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you very much to um, Jeremy Calais uh, from UCLA for joining us today. And uh, thank you very much to Michael Hoffman for returning to GUcast, a favourite guest of ours. Uh, thank you to Arun uh, for joining us again, and especially for um, your role on the Prospect Steering Committee and allowing us to contribute these um, three summer series podcasts that we're really pleased to do, Renew, aren't we? Yeah, episode one done. Yeah, it's really good. And we've got two other hot prostate cancer topics that we're going to post uh, over the next couple of months, uh, yeah. summer here in Melbourne. In the meantime, Merry Christmas, everyone, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Declan and team. Thank you. Bye-bye. Happy holidays.